Hey everyone, it's your host of See Jurassic Right, Stephen Ray Morris here, just dropping in to say, I hope you've been enjoying all the new episodes in 2023 and 2024 so far. There are new interviews with filmmakers, musicians, scientists, the screenwriter of Land Before Time, audio essays about the rich history of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World franchise, and all the news about the upcoming animated show Jurassic World Chaos Theory and the as-of-yet untitled Jurassic World sequel coming next summer. I really need your help supporting the show right now, and you can do that by leaving a tip and or giving a monthly follow on Patreon, patreon.com slash There are $1 and $5 tiers, but more is coming. Sharing the show, giving five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts, and liking and commenting on social, at Stephen Ray Morris on Instagram and Twitter, goes a long way to help boosting the show's visibility again online in this new era. I'm an independent podcaster and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Filled with odd fright, see Jurassic right, bathed in ember light, see Jurassic right, see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, see Jurassic right, see Jurassic Park. My name is Stephen Ray Morris, and welcome to See Jurassic Right. Yep, yep, yep. It's finally here. I don't know if I've talked about an interview more than this one, at least amongst friends, but I had a wonderful opportunity to chat with Land Before Time screenwriter Stu Krieger. I can confidently say that Jurassic Park and Land Before Time are the two greatest dinosaur movies. While Jurassic Park brought dinosaurs into a modern-day world of humans for a literal and existential face-off about our changing relationship with our planet, Land Before Time is a children's animated movie that is equally tragic as it is hopeful, filled with classic themes of friendship and the knowledge that in order to survive, we need to stick together. Watching the movie again this weekend while making the final edits, Land Before Time is still a visceral experience, genuinely sweet and heartbreaking. My generation was traumatized and delighted in equal measure by this 1988 animated classic. Everyone knows the Hollywood supergroup involved in making Land Before Time, directed by animation maestro Don Bluth, 
developed by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, produced by Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, created at Sullivan Bluth Studios and Amblin Entertainment, and released by Universal Pictures. The meme is to exclaim, this was my Avengers. And at the center of it all was Stu Krieger, whose work is seminal among millennials, especially. We got Monkey Trouble, A Troll in Central Park, the Shelley Long version of Freaky Friday, Cetus Lapidus, Xenon Girl of the 21st Century, and the sequel, and Smart House. Thanks again immensely to Stu Krieger, Brenna White, David Miller, Andrew Roebuck, and thank you for waiting. Check out Stu Krieger's brand new book, Raft. I just got my copy. And follow him on Instagram and TikTok at Stu Krieger. Now... Onto the show. I went to UCSB actually, so oh nice. UC UC person. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat with my guests today. They have written a bunch of great films, films uh, that I grew up with, including Smart House, Zine and Girl of the 21st Century, and of course, what we oh, and A Troll in Central Park. But what we're here to talk about today is The Land Before Time. It's the screenwriter Stu Krieger. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for coming. I. Again, have to thank uh, David Miller and Brenna White. In in Los Angeles, there's always like everyone is six degrees away from everyone. I feel like, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's such a delight to talk to you. I mean, Land Before Time is such an iconic movie, and for many people who were born, I mean, basically when the you know when the movie came out, it's like this movie has been part of our. It's just been part of our, you know, we all know the tree star. We all know Littlefoot and uh, Ducky and Petrie and Spike and Sarah and stuff like that. But I wanted to ask you, Stu, what was your relationship to dinosaurs? And were you, and were you a dinosaur kid growing up? You know, it's really interesting because I wasn't. And when I was thinking about this question, I was also thinking that I'm not sure it was such a thing when I was a kid in general. I was thinking about, you know, do I remember friends who were dinosaur obsessed or, and not so much. So obviously it was something, you know, we were aware of and thought about, but I don't remember any friends that had dinosaur play sets or plastic toys or much of it. So I had definitely an awareness, but I couldn't say a passion. Well, I mean, it, if anything, I mean, truly one of the biggest dinosaur renaissance is Renaissance I was in the eighties was at the time when you were making this movie. I mean, it was, you know, the first time people, you know, the theories about dinosaurs being warm blooded and feathers and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, it, to me, my, my awareness of dinosaurs before land before time essentially was like the caveman stuff, you know, yeah. did you see any of that? Like, like 1 million years BC, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, but on that note, I mean, you know, obviously, um, you know, writing Land Before Time in the 80s. But what was actually your journey to becoming a screenwriter? Uh, I was a freak, which <laughs> was I was somebody who knew I wanted to write from a very early age, but I have no idea why I knew that. I did not grow up with any connections to the film industry. I was a kid in Rochester, New York, who as a little kid used to take pictures out of the family album and send them to Walt Disney and say, I'm a really adorable redhead. You should put me in a couple of your movies. Uh, um, shockingly, he never did. <laughs> but I also, our family made a pilgrimage to LA when I was 12 years old. And on that trip, I said to my parents, uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but as soon as I have the will and the <laughs> resources to do it, this is where I belong. This is where I will be. And I went to college back east and graduated, worked for the summer and moved to LA. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. So in terms of the actual journey then to become a writer, I was 
initially just kind of applying to any job that was even tangentially related to the entertainment industry. You know, I applied to be a critter at Disneyland and a page at NBC <laughs> and a tour guide at Universal. And the first job I got was at the now defunct Los Angeles Herald Examiner newspaper. And I was hired as a copy boy, but I would spend a lot of my time in the entertainment department bugging them and asking them questions. And, you know, can I ever, would you let me do a celebrity interview? Would you let me do a film review? And after about six months, they were like, you know what, just go do it and leave us alone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got to do some of that. And the incredible thing when I was doing celebrity interviews is I would always be very professional through the interview. And then at the end say, you know, if you have 10 or 15 minutes, I'd love to pick your brain. Here's what I want to do. Do you have any advice on how I should go about it? And remarkably, everybody was incredibly kind and generous. And I interviewed Suzanne Plachette when she was on The New Hard Show and Sally Struthers when she was on All in the Family. And they would all, you know, be so generous with their time. And and kind of the takeaway was you really can't do anything until you have an agent. Mm. And so at the time, the Writers Guild had a published list that you could go and pick up. And on that list, they would star the agents that were willing to read from unproduced writers. And so I just started sending out a series of scripts and query letters and making phone calls and finally got a kind of boutique agency on Sunset Boulevard who liked my writing and wanted to work with me. And they eventually got me to a producer who was doing a low budget teen coming of age story that he hired me to write. And I was really fortunate because during those years, it was like every year something happened that moved the needle a little bit farther. And then what I kind of realized is the first couple projects I did were young coming of age stories and writers get typecast as quickly as actors do. <laughs> wow. So realizing that writers get typecast as quickly as actors do, I took a couple months off and I wrote a very personal autobiographical family comedy that was multiple generations coming together for a family reunion. And that script was the most influential of my career because even though the movie was optioned three times and never got made, that's the script that Penny Marshall read and had me in for meetings. Gary Marshall read wow. and hired me to write a project with him. And ultimately, that was the script that Steven Spielberg read. And he hired me to work on his first season of Amazing Stories, which was his initial foray into television. Mm. Wow. And so then while I was working on Amazing Stories, his head of development, Deborah Neumeyer, came to me. And at that point, I was on season two of the show. And she said, Stephen and George Lucas have always had this idea for an animated dinosaur movie they want to do. <laughs> Stephen and I were talking the other night, and we both feel since you become a father, your writing has taken on this whole other kind of level of depth. And we're wondering if you would like to write this movie for us. Wow. And one advice I give to my students all the time is when somebody says to you, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have this movie you, they want you to write, you say yes. <laughs> uh, wow. You don't ask a lot of questions. You don't ask, ask how much it's going to pay. You say yes, and you figure out everything else after that. Of course. No, that's such um, It's not so much about being in the right place at the right time, although that helps. It's almost like sort of paying attention to what people are gravitating towards you in a sense. Does that make sense at all? Like Spielberg maybe saw something in your writing and was like, it's almost like people kind of know you better than you know yourself in a way <laughs> of like what you're good at or whatever. I don't know if that, if any of that makes sense, but yeah, no, it totally does. And, and you know, I, if you have a moment for a sidebar story with Steven on that, when I was first hired for amazing stories, initially it was to write an episode and most of 
the episodes of the first season. I don't know how many people know this, but the reason the show happened was Stephen would always scribble down these ideas for things that would occur to him, and he'd just literally take a piece of paper and scribble down an idea. And when he was approached about getting into television, he said, I have a drawer full of ideas that don't quite feel like feature films, but they feel like, you know, in essence, short stories that could be filmed. And that was where the anthology nature of Amazing Stories came from. So most of the first season episodes were exactly that. You would get one page of, here's an idea of Stevens, what would you do with it? And then have to go back to the producers and pitch, you know, here's how I would develop this into a half hour episode. And my memory is, I think maybe three or four of the first season were also hour episodes. The three that I ended up doing were all half hours. So I did that. And then I got invited to come meet with Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy, who were Stevens producers and producers on the show. And they said for season two, Stevens putting together a story panel. And instead of a traditional story editor, he wants to meet weekly with all the scripts. And together, we'll kind of talk through the development of them and what they need and who should rewrite the episodes and whatever. So I said, very flattering. That's cool. You sure you want me? And they said, yeah, come on. And I walked into the first meeting at Amblin in their conference room, and Stephen was not there yet, but Frank and Kathy were. And it was Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale who had just finished doing Back to the Future. It was Jay Cox, who was the critic for Time Magazine at the time. It was Menno Magis, who was writing Color Purple for Stephen. Richard Matheson, who is a sci-fi legend and had worked on the original Twilight Zone. Um, and me. <laughs> and I was sitting at the table looking around like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and then Stephen walked in and he sat down at the foot of the table and started talking. And my heart's pounding because we had not yet met in person. He wrote me a lovely note after he got my draft on the first episode, but we hadn't met. And I'm sitting there and he's talking about the scripts and he's talking about his vision for the season. And I can hear my heart pounding because I'm waiting for the moment when he looks up and goes, excuse me, who the hell are you? (laughs) (laughs) And then at one point, we're talking through one of the scripts and he says, you know, when I was reading this, this seems like the perfect Stu Krieger script to me. Do you want to take it, whack it, doing the rewrite? And, you know, my internal monologue is going, how does he know? (laughs) You know, oh, my God, he's magic besides, (laughs) you know. And then finally at lunch that day, when we took a break, like three hours after, I got to go over and formally, you know, say, it's such a pleasure to meet you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, yeah, he clearly knew something I did. (laughs) It's so, I don't know, spellbound maybe is not the right word, but there's something kind of magical about that. It almost, (laughs) there's something very magical about that notion. But um, yeah, I I was reading just, you know, the trivia and stuff like that. And again, my my friends have uh, a Don Bluth podcast, uh, the Bluth, the whole Bluth and nothing but the Bluth. Nice. To give them a plug. (laughs) But, you know, listening to their podcast about Land Before Time and and talking about it and stuff, it seems there was a version of Land Before Time where the dinosaurs didn't speak at all. Were you involved in that stage of it at that point or anything? Yeah, that's actually, there's a two-part answer which was where I came into the process. They had had a draft done. And if I'm remembering right, and I believe I am, it was by the writers who had done American Tale. And ultimately, when I was approached on it, they said, you know, they're just not kind of nailing what we're after. We're not really happy with the draft. We want to start from page one. But there's certain bones of things that Stephen and George are really committed to that they want to make sure endure. And so I said, you know, for my purposes, I would rather not read that script I would rather just hear what the things are that you want to hang on to and start from scratch just so there's not undue influence of, you know, pulling things that you guys already have decided you're not that thrilled with. So at the point I came on, I never did read that script, but they were still committed to the concept of keeping it more 
whatever the opposite of anthropomorphized is. Yeah, yeah. You know, keep it at more kind of, you know, that the dinosaurs were more real dinosaurs. And, yeah, and yeah. I think that there's the segment from Fantasia that's the Rites of Spring that has the whole evolution. Yes. And I think that was kind of the initial vision, more of a feature-length version of that. And then what I inherited from them was literally this manila folder full of like dinosaurs walk past a burning volcano. Mother dis- dinosaur engages with Tyrannosaurus Rex. It was just all these disconnected pieces of thoughts and ideas. And they said, kind of take this and go away and come back and pitch us the new version of the story. But at that point, they still were committed to the nonverbal version. Huh. Interesting. And at the same time, they were talking about, you know, the young audience that was what they were aiming for. And when we got into the room and really started breaking it down, and that was with Stephen and Don Bluth and his producer, John Pomeroy and Frank and Kathy. And then I always, you know, tell this story because it's my most vivid memory. But George, 98% of the time that we worked on the movie, he was up at Skywalker Ranch in Northern California, not in the conference room at Amblin with us, but he was the speaker. On, I mean, he was the voice on the speaker box in the middle of the table. And I always called him Charlie from Charlie's Angels. Because, <laughs> you know, we would just hear George's disembodied voice on the speaker box once in a while. Oh, my gosh. But when we started having those conversations, one of the things that I raised was, I think it's going to be really difficult to hold the attention of a young audience if the dinosaurs aren't speaking, just because it's difficult to develop their personalities and their interactions and, you know, kind of some of the fun and comedy, even though we can do so much visually, it's still, I don't think is as engaging to a young audience as it would be if they could speak. And so little by little, that kind of, you know, became common. Yeah, that does make sense. And then I actually, at the time, right after the movie wrapped, I wrote an article for The Hollywood Reporter. And the title of the article was A Dinosaur Wouldn't Say That. Because you had these highly successful, highly intelligent, grown men and women sitting at a table fighting over some of the language (laughs) that we were coming up with. And at some point, and I forget who it was, you know, among that group, but somebody yelled in frustration, a dinosaur wouldn't say that. And then it was like, you know, a dinosaur wouldn't say anything. Yeah. So so we kind of have to go back to ground zero on that. Wow. And so that was kind of how it evolved. And even with very specific things, as I know, one of your other questions was about the evolution of the term tree star. Yeah. And one of the things that I was always trying to think about and bring to the table was the perspective of young kids. And they talk about, you know, when children do a – Family drawings and stuff, often the characters have no neck when they're drawing their parents and stuff. (laughs) And the psychologist will tell you that's because from their perspective, when they're looking up, nobody does have a neck. You know, It's just the way they're seeing from the ground up is the torso and the arms coming out of the head, and that's about it. Wow. So I was trying to apply the same logic to the dinosaurs looking upwards and, you know, laying on my – and literally would do things like this, go outside, lay on my back and look up at the trees. Yes. And go – that looks like a star to me, you know? And that was really where Tree Star came from. And one of the things about that that I appreciated with your question was when the film wrapped, Don gave me two original cells from the actual film, uh, animation cells, and one framed in my office and one framed in my living room. And both of them prominently feature the Tree Star. And, you know, I'm quite convinced that the reason he selected those two in particular was because the tree star was such a battle to get <laughs> you yeah. know, over the hump and eventually into the movie. I mean, that's I mean, that's truly incredible. And to the point earlier about, you know, whether or not, you know, Land Before Time was going to have the dinosaurs, you know, silent or talk. But I feel like the way 
kids, or at least I've seen, interact with the world, you can't help but apply personality to things. And to me, it's it's not an issue of realism. It's just sort of, you know, it's almost like you're applying that layer of like, how would we see this adventure? And it, it feels almost like crafted from the mind of a child in that sense. Like, what's the kind of most amazing, intense, breathtaking kind of adventure that you could think of for dinosaurs to go on in a way? Yeah, and and I think the other thing, you know, to your point of the childlike world of it, I always felt that that was part of the success of my career in family entertainment. And as I said before, you know, when Spielberg, when Deborah Neumeyer, his head of development, came to me and said, you know, we just see a difference in your writing since you become a dad. One of the things that I was always really conscious of was just listening and paying attention to my kids and having written 10 or 11 Disney Channel original movies, if you watch them, the progression of my catalog is the progression of the ages of my children. So like, you know, the kids in the movies I wrote got progressively older as my kids got older because I could write them more authentically and paying attention to the things they and their friends were talking about. I, I always tell this story about my office is at the front of our house and it's got double acoustic like recording studio glass doors. So when I'm working, I really don't hear the family. But when the kids were little, my wife was a stay at home mom and the kids were, you know, the kids and all their friends were around quite a bit. And I would open my office door, listen to them for 20 minutes, close the door and write a scene. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. That's so, that's so cool. That's like, yeah, you're getting it directly, <laughs> directly unfiltered, you know? Exactly. And at one point we were watching dailies for Smart House and my son was like 10 and he was watching the fight between the brother and sister. And he said, dad, Rosie and I had a fight just like that a couple months ago. I said, I know. And that's why you're going to be able to afford to go to college, buddy. So (laughs) keep talking. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's yes. I mean, Smart House is another movie that is, I mean, I have friends, we've had like, you know, Disney Channel original movie watch nights and stuff like that. Those movies were such an iconic part of growing up for me as well. But yeah, I mean, with Land Before Time, I mean, I guess for you, what was the difference in doing animated versus live action? Yeah, the best part about animation, because as you mentioned in the opening credits, you know, I did that. I also did Troll in Central Park with Don Bluth. And then I worked on an animated series called Toot and Puddle for Nickelodeon and did a couple other projects. And the most fun part of the animation stuff is you are as free as your imagination, whereas in life, live action, you're always having to stop and consider, you know, what's the budget for that? If we have the if we have to build a volcano, can we also build an earthquake? You know, those kinds of things. And so the joy of animation, both in terms of what your characters can do in terms of talking dinosaurs and flying pigs and all the rest of it, uh, you know, that's really liberating and fun. But then also just the lack of constraints of, you know, do I have to think about the budget of this versus just write the best and most magical story you can create? I have such a respect for animation because there is no limits to your imagination. Everyone just is, I feel like everyone in animation is just on their A game in terms of, I mean, just hearing stories about any animated movie. It's just like, wow, this is the most incredible thing. And when you got that manila envelope, were the characters already like, did they already have the characters in mind or was more of like you said, like kind of, cause I, I know I've read other stories about Steven Spielberg's process too, where it is just these kind of iconic moments or, you know, little scraps of stuff like that, of like big ideas. Yeah. Were the characters kind of already there or was it, or did you create, you know, our iconic cast of dinosaurs? Um, because I did not read the previous draft, what I got was kind of a sketch of, so and originally, who became Littlefoot, his character was Thunderfoot, but he was 
basically who he was. So there were preliminary sketches that I was handed. And the whole thing why he became Littlefoot versus Thunderfoot is there was a, I believe it was a children's book in England that had already had a brontosaurus that was named Thunderfoot. So he became Littlefoot. And then the pterodactyl's name was Terry, but on Pee-wee's Playhouse, there was Terry the pterodactyl. So he had to be renamed. And Dan Petrie and his brother Donald, who are both writer-directors, who are friends of mine, had been in my life forever and ever. And it was kind of like, oh, how about if he was Petrie? <laughs> so he became Petrie. And this was actually a great story when you said the thing about six degrees of separation in Hollywood. One of my former undergrad students from UC Riverside was doing his grad program at Chapman, and Donald Petrie was the teacher in the class. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, Donald had all these film credits of his own, and he said the first thing he said to them is, I hope you know that Petrie, the dinosaur, was named for my family. And then Nate, who was my former student, said, you mean Land Before Time by Stu Krieger? He was my professor at Riverside. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's where Petrie came from. And then Sarah, I'm trying to think because I don't, exactly remember what her character was. I know we renamed her. And this was a really funny question I got on another podcast I had done. Just It was more. It was actually a Disney Channel podcast, but they asked about Land Before Time. And, and the, the uh, moderator said, you know, everybody else had these like Littlefoot and Ducky and Spike names. Why was Sarah like just a completely Anglo name? <laughs> and I said, she's actually not. You know, we don't spell it in the movie, but if you looked at the script, she's C-E-R-A because yeah. she was a triceratops. So, so you know, that's where it came from. And he said, oh, that makes me see, feel so much better because it was <laughs> like, you know, I was thinking then Littlefoot should be Judy and somebody else should be Sally. But I said, no, no, no. <laughs> she was Sarah because she was a triceratops. But the whole idea of that character in terms of making her the only girl and a bit of a bully and a bit of, you know, all of that was something that we evolved together once I was on the process. Wow. That's just so funny. I mean, my friend Sarah, who I host another podcast with and who hosts the the Bluth Pod, I mean, she's a Sarah and she relates a lot to Sarah <laughs> from Land Before Time. So she really appreciates it. And then I'm assuming Ducky and S Spike based on kind of the dinosaur species that they were. Yep. Was there also, because you mentioned that Littlefoot already kind of had the species picked. Yep. So was it kind of similar for the other dinosaurs as well? Yeah, because the one thing, like I mentioned, that I did inherit was the preliminary sketches that Don, yeah. Don had done. And so then it was kind of hewing to those. And like I said, some of it was reshaping the personality, some of it was renaming, but the basic, you know, cast of characters was pretty much in place. I mean, it's just such a, it, it's, they, I mean, they all play off so well. It's almost like everyone's kind of like, you know, it's like this game of rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> um, what was it like working with Don Bluth? It was really one of the great joys of my career because in addition to his talent, Don is one of the kindest, most considerate, most wonderful human beings on the planet. And I always said that, you know, he was my version of Walt Disney in terms of he was such a storyteller and he was such a – he. I mean, some – of my favorite days were being in the office and he would just go off on tangents talking about the history of animation or the origin of the Peter Pan story or these wonderful things that will be with me forever. And then the other great Don Bluth thing was every day, somewhere between two and four o'clock, he would take a 15 minute nap where he, he would literally slide under his desk, lay flat with his eyes closed and his hands folded across his chest and fall asleep for 15 or 20 minutes. And then I, I don't remember if he actively set an alarm or what the deal was, but, wow. then, but then he would be back up and like, I'm, I'm refreshed. I'm good to go. Let's go. <laughs> I 
Man, so much respect for that. I've always wanted to do that. Some some desks aren't as comfortable, and sometimes <laughs> you don't have carpet. You got to like throw a little cot under there or something. Yeah, he was incredible. I imagine working in the industry for that long. He's like, this is what I'm going to do for myself, and uh, you know, it's going to be, it's just going to be the way to do it. Yeah, and it was incredibly consistent no matter where he was because in the time that we worked together, he had an office in Van Nuys. Then he moved the studio to Ireland. And when we were finishing Land Before Time and starting Troll in Central Park, I actually got to go and hang out with them in Ireland for two weeks. And this was another, you know, just measure of who Don was when he said, actually, now that I'm thinking it through, it was we were kind of coming toward the end of the. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Writing process on Troll. It was at that point where he said, if you could sit in the room with the animators and with the storyboards and all that would be really helpful. And I said, my only problem is, you know, I have an 18 month old and a five year old. And I don't know if it's fair for me to go off and leave my wife for two weeks. And he said, bring them. I'll, I'll pay to bring the whole family over. Whoa. And so he did. He, you know, brought <sighs> my wife, my kids, and I over for two weeks so I could work and they could tour Dublin and hang out. And on the weekend that we were there, he got us a driver for the weekend to take us around the countryside. And it was just an amazing experience. Oh, I can imagine. I, yeah, I spent some time in Ireland um, when I was in grad school in the UK. And I feel like that's where, like, as far as imagination running wild, it's like you look at your window and you yeah. see the green and, like, and just even, just how much older things are and stuff. I feel like that can just even that kind of can inspire a little bit more of like getting in touch. I mean, it's not quite 65 million years ago, but, (laughs) (laughs) but you were guaranteed to run into a troll somewhere along the line. Yes. That helped. Yes, of course. Of course. Again, another aspect about Land Before Time that I think has just been, you know, I think lately my generation is very nostalgic for their childhood. And it's been cool to see certain things, you know, every once in a while, it's like, wait, why doesn't this thing have a special edition and director's cut and all these things thrown back in and like retrospective film festival screening and the soundtrack on vinyl and all like. So on that note, I I read that um, there was a considerable amount of stuff cut from Land Before Time. Do you remember anything about that or or moments that were cut from the film? Wait a minute. One of these days I have to sit down because I found in a back closet, and it's before the last VCR dies, I have two VHS really, really, really early cuts of the movie. 
And honestly, I don't even remember everything that's in there. And so one of these days, that has to be my homework to look at those. <laughs> but the sequence that I do remember, because it was really interesting in terms of everybody's different approach to storytelling and filmmaking, is Don and I had created the sequence of kind of wanting to explain more about how Sarah got to be the way she was. And we had come up with this whole thing about as they were marching toward the Great Valley, they came upon us and it was... I believe right before the earthquake was where it was initially inserted, but it was, you know, this dry, arid stretch of land, and they came upon a single flower coming up out of a crack in the earth. And it was the way the sequence was designed. It was them marching past it, with Sarah bringing up the rear, and then her looking up and seeing that everybody else had moved on. And she stops and has like a private moment with the flower and is smelling it and nuzzling it and kind of, you know, ooing and eyeing over the joy and beauty of this flower. And then the guys turn around to see what's keeping her and she kicks it and stomps it and moves <laughs> on. And it was sort of like, I wasn't being soft. I wasn't, you know, showing my kinder side. Don't, don't get any ideas, boys. And then ran to catch up with them. And at some point in the cut, Stephen just was like, that's cute and everything, but I don't think it's moving the story along fast enough. Let's go. We don't really need it. And uh, I'm pretty sure none of that sequence is in. And if it is, it might be a really truncated version, but I don't think. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> that's another thing that I, you know, I, I think I said this to you in the email, but, you know, not being the Norma Desmond type who sits and watches my career at nightly on TV, I really haven't seen Land Before Time from beginning to end in quite a while. Ultimately, I think me bringing up all that nostalgia and stuff and, you know, would, you know, would love to see some sort of like full restored cut of the movie one day. Ultimately the movie that we have is, is amazing and iconic and, and, uh, you know, such an important part of a lot of people's childhoods, but it's just, you know, it's just that little icing on the cake. Where yeah. we're just like, well, if, you know, if we could see a little bit more, that would be cool. But I mean, that's fascinating to hear a little bit about, you know, those moments that were cut. Yep. And, and I will say, I have to, I'm a guy who doesn't think I've ever seen a director's cut that was better than the release movie. Yeah. 99% of the time, it's like, yeah, now we understand why those things were cut. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Were you involved in any of the sequels at all? No. Uh, and that was a very, very conscious choice. My contract was written such that I had to have the first right of refusal on any sequels. And about, I think it was a little more than a year after the film came out. I got a call from Universal to come in and meet with them. And when I went to the meeting, kind of the tenor of what was being presented was, uh, we're doing them as direct-to-video sequels. We're doing them down and dirty pretty cheaply, and Stephen won't be involved. Do you want to write them? <laughs> and you know, it was kind of like, do you want to write the crappy version of this movie? <laughs> and, and, you know, and I know some of the sequels have legions of fans, so forgive me for that. But, but I really had a moment of, I am on to other things. I'm working with Don on, you know, Troll in Central Park. I've got a couple other projects in the work. I would rather be the guy who created the franchise and did the big, beautiful theatrical version produced by Spielberg and Lucas than, the guy who stayed too long at the party. Um, <laughs> that so, was fair. Yeah. So it was really, you know, I, I kind of ended the meeting with, I very, very much appreciate you honoring the contract. I appreciate you coming to me. I'm going to pass and move on and best of luck. And kind of, that was the end of that. Well, I mean, and truly like if the things of why you wanted to be there, you know, working with Steven Spielberg, working with Don Bluth, like those kind of like if those elements or the idea that they're going to, you know, I mean, Lamb Before Time is, is one of the best dinosaur movies of all time. And, and to sort of be like, Hey, we're going to do this, but you know, we're going to do it at a cheaper level and not kind of give it that, 
you know, maybe at the time they weren't thinking about it this way, but like the respect that it deserves, this is this perfect thing. Why spoil it? You know, in that yeah. sense. Yeah. And, and it really felt like that. And, you know, as I said at the very beginning about writers getting typecast, a couple of years later, I did a movie called Monkey Trouble with Thora Birch and Harvey yeah. Keitel. And then the next four months, every script I got offered had a monkey in it. <laughs> and again, you know, I went into a manager to meet with them because they were doing Curious George. And it was the same kind of feeling at the end of the meeting. I love you guys. I'm so honored that you brought me in. I'm not going to do another monkey movie right now, you know? So. No, that's wonderful. I mean, again, it's funny to see, you know, like Steven Spielberg, I feel like has been a lot more involved in the Jurassic sequels, even ones that he hasn't directed. And I wonder if there is that element of because Jaws kind of got away and. Um, obviously Land Before Time took kind of a more, you know, different direction. I wonder if that's maybe why he's been more tightly holding on to stuff like Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's, you know, it's always about, for me anyway, it was, you know, where's your heart? Where's your head? What can you do a good job with at this point? And when it was projects where it's just like, I'm not feeling it, guys. I always just, for whatever reason, because some people are go, you know, but they were offering you money. They were offering you a writing <laughs> job. And it's like, the perversion of Hollywood is the more you say no, the more they want you anyway. And yeah. you get to maintain an element of artistic integrity at the same time. Wow. I love that. I love that a lot. And bringing up that nostalgia element a little bit because of, and you know, for any listeners who haven't gone back and rewatched Land Before Time, like it's one of those things with any, you know, property that has sequels and, you know, spinoffs and things. And you almost kind of forget what the original was like, but it's, it's a very, I, there's a lot of great kid stuff now, but I mean, it's just, it's, there's something very, um, elegiac about the original mm-hmm. movie or something. And it's just almost for me as somebody who loves dinosaur movies, it's like, I wonder if Universal had, you know, given it more of a chance. Could it have been? Cause I felt like, uh, and, and you know, I'd be curious to have your insight into this. You know, it just felt like from Land Before Time through Jurassic Park, we were in such a like, this ties into my last question, but we were such a like, you know, we were in such a dinosaur era, but it felt like it didn't last as long as I feel like people thought it was going to last. And, you know, I love the Marvel stuff. I love, you know, all the Star Wars stuff, but it's like, it's like, why don't we have, you know, five different dinosaur movies animated, you know, for kids, adults, like all that stuff. And I guess, yeah, part of that, you know, hearing that Universal didn't want to take the chance on, you know, maybe elevating or, you know, continuing to keep Land Before Time at the level it had just kind of makes me a little bit sad because, you know, it, it was so good. Good. But yeah, I mean, this has been such a really, it's been such a delightful chatting, uh, delightful chat with you and hearing these stories. Again, it's like, it's just the kind of thing when I, when I'm on the Universal tram ride, it's like, this is to me, your story is like the kind of magic that they talk about when you're going on the tram ride and hearing about the behind the scenes and stuff. Like that's the, you know, Steven Spielberg, um, you know, Jurassic Park was the movie that like, you know, made me be like, whoa, like you can do this with movies, you know, and <laughs> Land Before Time, you know, as well, just being like the sort of magic of of just good storytelling and stuff like that. But why do you think, what is it about dinosaurs, you know, and, and why something like Land Before Time is like, ugh, it's like stood the test of time. Uh, that's not really a pun, I guess. But <laughs> why are people, you know, especially kids, why are, I mean, why are people s- still so fascinated with dinosaurs? 
I think it has to do with the fact that they were real monsters. And, you know, traditionally as human beings, as far back as storytelling goes, there's always been monster tales and ghost tales and all of those kinds of things. But the fact that dinosaurs were actual monsters that roamed the same earth that we are roaming. And I think it also is tied into the fact that the mystery of why they came and why they left and how they left, (laughs) you know, was it a meteor or what, whatever all those theories are. I think there's those things that are just inherently fascinating to people. And I also think it's part of our human nature that any of those unsolved questions stay a lot longer than the things we go, okay, we got that one figured out. We're moving on, you know? So, so I think that enduring both the mythology and mystery of dinosaurs and the fact that they were monsters roaming the earth is so connected to the fascination we have and have had and continue to have. Wow. Beautifully said. I mean, I think that's a great note to end on. This was so, I mean, if, if there's any other stories about the making of Lambert for time, if you want to share, but otherwise that was, that was such a great note to end on. Yeah, no, the only other thing I was going to say, cause it, it's something that has been the great gift of my second career as a university professor is show business is really constructed in a way that you are never a success when you are in it. <laughs> because it's always about what are you working on next? Yeah. What's the new thing? What was the thing you told me about that fell apart? How come it fell apart? You know, it just, it's always all about that. And so even though it kind of objectively, if I had the opportunity ever to step outside, it's like, you know, I had a wonderful career. I did some incredible projects with amazing people, but it wasn't until I started teaching that people on a very regular basis, including this morning when I was reading an application for next year's MFA program, and somebody said, you know, I would love to study with Stu Krieger because the guy basically wrote my childhood. And I can't think of a more, just a, a way to be more humbled and honored and touched by the fact that all these years later, people are still responding to Land Before Time, responding to the Disney Channel canon, which is now alive and well again on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. You know, and having what I consider a true honor to have been a significant part of people's childhoods. And so, you know, when someone like yourself reaches out and says, this had incredible meaning to me and would love to talk to you about it. It's just, it's such a pleasure and it's such a privilege. And I just wanted to acknowledge that. Oh, wow. No, that's so wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been so fantastic. I mean, I always have to, is is there anywhere where people, are you a social media guy? Is there anywhere people can follow you or, or should we just send people over to, to Disney plus to watch, um, you know, your Canon and all that stuff? Yes. Check out, <laughs> check out Disney plus and all the rest and really, really appreciate the time, Stephen. Oh no, of course. Wait, what's the name of the novel? Uh, it was called that one cigarette. It's a counterfactual history novel that spans from November of 1963 to January of 2009. Oh, I have to check that out. Yeah. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Stu, again for chatting with me. Be sure to check out his new book, Raft, and follow him on social at Stu Krieger on Instagram and TikTok. Special thanks to Andrew Roebuck, a.k.a. Wine Movie Nerd, who did some initial editing on this episode. You can check out his YouTube channel, It Came From The Page, to get your fill of trash lit and so much more and if you can please donate to the patreon patreon.com slash see jurassic right and follow along with the show at Stephen ray morris on instagram and twitter sjpod and see jurassic right hold on to your butts until next time Let's get that motherfucking tree star. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.